Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Mind Matters. Today, we're going to be talking about capitalism. Uh, specifically, we're going to reference the book we started discussing last week. Um, what was that book called, Corey? The Victory of Reason. By Rodney Stark. By Rodney Stark, yeah. Right. So he ta- in the book, he talks about the um, kind of rise of capitalism, and it's one of the, one of the points that... Uh, one of the things that he says was kind of made possible by Christianity, and the, one of the kind of things that we should look at one of the positive developments we should look at when we think in terms of our, you know, Christian history in in Western civilization. So we're going to look at some of the things that he said about the, uh, said about all that and maybe get into some, um, some more just kind of general ideas about capitalism and the kind of critique of capitalism, because it's kind of, it's really a, you know, I found recently, especially being more aware and following more the kind of, uh, culture wars and the, you know, the, the battle between the left and the right and the polarization that capitalism, you know, gets raised a lot. And it always has been, you know, within the, within the academic community, at least, you know, it's a point of contention. On the one hand, you have the people saying that all of the, all the greatest things in the, in modern civilization come about from capitalism. And then you get the, the critique that says that, well, actually, no, capitalism doesn't do anything good. And, uh, and it's actually responsible for everything bad in the world. So there's kind of a, a corollary, like a, an analogy to be made or a, a connection to what we discussed last week, which was the kind of the view of Christianity and how um, many people will see Christianity as being a totally bad thing historically and in the present, um, whereas a guy like Rodney Stark comes along and says, well, hey, you know, wait a minute, let's look at the, the actual history. And, and when you do that, you see that there are actually some positive developments that have come because of the, the rise of Christianity. So, um, so yeah, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Maybe I'll turn it over to you, Corey, and just ask, um, what exactly does Stark talk about in his book? So, like, how does he see the rise of capitalism in, like, in Europe, and how does he kind of relate it to Christianity? Well, the main thing that he points out, like, just to start off, he says that capitalism as a term really came about as a derogatory way of viewing Western, the Western economic system. So, you know, to, to define it, you know, it's kind of like defining the word jerk, you know, a bunch of jerks, (laughs) a bunch of capitalists, but capital originally came about in the word itself came out in the 14th century to describe using money to make money. And it was, you know, an entirely very rational pursuit, a way of using funds for something besides consumption, which was radically different from, you know, a Greco-Roman times when, you know, if you had extra money, then you were going to use it to consume and, you know, throw lavish parties. And because you have to show off your social status, because social status was extremely important. Whereas in Christianity, as we discussed last week, you know, as, as uh, St. Paul said, there is no Greek nor Jew, no rich nor slave in Christ. Um, so in, in that sense, social status wasn't nearly as important. And rather what mattered was, was works. And so with the fall of, with the collapse of Rome, you know, every, so, so many historians look at the collapse of Rome and, and think that the Dark Ages must have followed beca- just because, you know, Rome was so great. Imperial Rome, fantastic. But as Rodney Stark points out, he has kind of a people's, he takes a people's history perspective on it. And he says, 
Well, actually, you know, Rome was this giant bloated beast that just sucked the wealth and labor and slaves from the, the borderlands and wasted tons and tons of human energy for, you know, just for maintaining this giant bureaucratic empire. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it collapsed, the, you know, in the pursuing centuries, when people were rebuilding, they actually had a great amount of freedom to tinker and to find ways to, to improve uh, their lives without having to worry about their wealth being appropriated by the Roman elite. You know? And so just that in and of itself opened up, it was just a huge breath of fresh air for people who were rebuilding and just tinkering with new ways of growing their crops and you know, working with the, the horses. And he points out that uh, one, of the great, one of the biggest improvements early on was the use of like water mills and windmills in order to you know create just basic you know basic necessities like they they used the, those that technology to make paper and you know uh, numerous other things to you know provide basic energy and just to just for manufacturing in and of itself so that um, kind of ingenuity and that that practice of you know of using innovations in order to make life better was a basic precursor to the rise of capitalism because you couldn't have capital, you know, excess funds without just, you know, being able to work efficiently and make enough money in order to, to make enough to, to make produce money. enough in order to have excess funds. But then once they had those excess funds, what they did, um, what largely what took place in the early monasteries, as we discussed last week, was that the monks started using um, that money to prepare greater estates and to prepare for the future of their estates and reinvesting it in local technologies and in different ways of manufacturing and and growing enough uh, crops in order to feed not just themselves but also the um, uh, the surrounding population um, and so I've got a couple I got a couple good quotes in here um, as a as Stark writes, the, the monks did more than invest in land or lend from their bursting treasuries. They began to leave their fields, vines, and barns and, in re, and retire into liturgical work, conducting endless paid masses for souls in purgatory and for living benefactors who wished to improve their fates in the next world. Monks now enjoyed leisure and luxury. The monks at Cluny were given plentiful and choice foods. Their wardrobe was renewed annually. The manual labor prescribed by the rule of St. Benedict was reduced to entirety to entirely symbolic tasks about the kitchen. The monks lived like lords. But rather than living like lords, what they did was they used their their money to hire a labor force and to create a very, you know, capitalistic miniature little capitalistic system where they were paying wages to people who came and worked on the, these great estates. And there were, there were, you know, thousands of acres of these estates. I think um, one, that, that uh, monastery at Cluny, or, or he says had what was like 100,000 acres. One ha- in Hungary had fields totaling 250,000 acres and much of the growth, he writes, was achieved by incorporating previously untilled tracks as well as by clearing forests and draining submerged areas. And for example, monks at the monastery of Les Dunes recovered about 25,000 acres of fertile fields from the marshes along the Flanders coast. And a lot, all of this activity would have been unthinkable under the Roman Empire just because there, was, there would have been no reason to do it. You, you, you know, this, the idea of private property, this was... Uh, a very 
uh, Christian idea that, you know, early theologians were hammering out was that, you know, private property is necessary, even though some of the, the, the monks were inclined more towards wanting communal property because, you know, they took vows of poverty. But, um, you know, the idea was that you should be free to not be interfered with. The government should not interfere with and take your property. You know, like the Roman Empire, on the other hand, there's no freedom and there's no private property there. Somebody, you know, if the Roman Empire wants your, you know, your, your stuff, they're going to come and they're going to take it. Um, so that was an important precursor for the rise of capitalism was this notion of private property and of, of treating it with a sense of frugality and, and this, what you would say, a capitalist ethic towards creating greater returns and improving the, the whatever you have been given in this life. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe to take it off from there, we can, uh, we'll come back to some of the points in the book, but um, I just want to comment on a few things kind of related. So in the, the critique of capitalism, like you pointed out, it was originally like a derogatory term. It was like critics of the, the economic system that you know, first started using the word capitalist in, in, a, in a way. It's like they identif- identified something bad and called it capitalism. And so I think, but, but it's, it, it, hasn't, it hasn't totally remained that way like in the 150 years since you know, that idea first started. Now you've got a whole bunch of different views of capitalism, so maybe we can kind of define what we mean by it. You already gave a good definition. You know, just really simple, like using money to make more money. But um, there are several ideas that are kind of underlying that, I think. Um, so, well, for example, there's this one book I read recently um, by Nima Sanandaji, who is a Swedish-Iranian economist um, and kind of like policy guy. And it's this book, Birthplace of Capitalism, uh, the Middle East. He basically argues that a lot of uh, a lot of the ideas associated with capitalism, specifically like free market and by free market, mostly from like an Austrian perspective, I might get into you know those distinctions. But a lot of those ideas, you know, weren't developed uh, primarily or firstly in in Europe. You know, in the times that we kind of think of it. Um, you know, in the past several hundred years, that uh, the that the basic principles uh, that a lot of uh, like economists identify with capitalism cropped up first in the ancient near east like in uh, in mesopotamia in what is, what is now like iraq and syria and um, and in ancient china and in various of these areas that you you found what what were essentially capitalistic ideas you had some of the first like proto corporations in india and you had free market principles in the, among the Native Americans and Confucius and Mencius, like talking about basic f- free market ideas like uh, low taxation and uh, private property and um, um, you know the idea that exchanges should be free. And then you had contract law and uh, and even in like in the in the first like the, well the first writing was to basically keep track of economic records in in Mesopotamia. And in the first laws, there were you know some of the most important things were private property. And all the laws were about, you know, theft and what to do in certain situations, like what to do if one person has property that someone else says was theirs and how to prove it and what to do in all these different cases. So um, some of the basic ideas that or principles that get associated with capitalism. Um, now, I, now, these are all contentious, of course, because you, the, 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 the critiques of capitalism will say, oh, well, that's not capitalism. <laughs> but then the self-declared capitalists will say, well, that's what I mean by capitalism. And then other like uh, other other people will say, well, I'm not a capitalist, but I believe in these principles. So it's it's going to be an endless like debate, um, you know, among 
partisans, but essentially like a lot for, I'll, I'll take the, the position of the people that count themselves or some of the people that count would consider themselves like free market capitalists. Like the, the ideas are private property and um, like minimal government intervention, minim, minimal state intervention in, in the, the operations of the economy. And um, basically uh, like, the free exchange of of goods so you are free to do with your money what what you want to do with it you are free to pay someone else for what like what you want to pay for it and they're free to sell it to you for what you're willing to what you know what you're willing to uh, what they can get for it essentially and um and that's pretty much you know th there's more of course but that's the, pretty much the basics of it so the, the the free market is would be essentially just letting people do what they w will do on their own with certain laws in place, right? So to protect, uh, to protect um, property rights and to, to ensure kind of fair dealings so that people aren't screwing each other over, um, but that a lot, of the, um, a lot of the details get hammered out by the individuals themselves, as opposed to, say, the state or the empire um, dictating like everything in economic policy. So like high taxation, which of course um, um, the, the free marketeers would disagree with and which a lot, and, and which, um, you know, a lot of these ancient cultures disagreed with. They said, well, well it fluctuated. So back and forth between like state control and more and more free markets. Um, but that the, the, the state should kind of be limited to just letting those things play out and shouldn't get in, get too involved in the economy. Especially, and that would reach its kind of uh, epitome, or the you know the the most extreme version as a, in a total a totally planned economy, which is impossible because um, especially in a like a developed economy or a semi-developed economy, there are, for example, just dealing with prices. Like if you look at some some anecdotes from the Soviet Union, you know there are millions of products basically, and that is millions of products to determine prices for. So uh, Thomas Sowell, in one of his books, gives a, a good anecdote of, in, in a paper written by these two, um, like, Soviet economists who are basically responsible for the, for the um, like, for doing this, for coming up with all these prices. And, and they're talking about how, how impossible it is to, to determine all these prices when there's millions of them. And, and so they, they would, like, give quotas for how much to produce of what. And, and so there was one example. I think it was furs. So they, they wanted to, to lower the price of this certain fur. And so all of a sudden, all the hunters, you know, were, were killing all of these animals. I don't know if, it, you know, it wasn't beavers, but it would be, you know, something equivalent. So basically killing tons of beavers. So now the state had all of these extra beaver pelts and they were just rotting in the, in the warehouses because there was no demand for them. And this happened in like, kind of every sphere of the economy with when you try to set prices like that um, to such an extreme degree. So that would like, so that would be the extreme. The, the extremes on the one hand are like a totally planned economy, which is impossible because there are so many variables that you would need, like you, you, there's no way to coordinate all of that and to, to be able to, to constantly track prices and constantly track you know, basically supply and demand in order to come up with the with the best price, it turns out that people are actually pretty good at that at just determining it on their own, and that's what you would see in the kind of the older the the more ancient free market like economies, like along the old Silk Road. It's like prices were 
determined you know, by the market, not by someone controlling the market. And when you say by the market, that is just the individuals engaging in these transactions. And um, even back in like ancient Iraq, you had, you had uh, people like keeping track of, of prices in the markets like on a weekly basis and observing this and trying to come up with the principles. And then it was only in like the past several hundred years that you know, we've got our modern kind of economic theories that have come about. And so what we eventually have nowadays, we have, very, we have various capitalisms because, you know, people like coming up with words and, and coming up with, you know, these speculative abstract systems to try to, to, try to describe things and, um, and make sense of them and therefore try to hopefully be able to produce a, a methodology like a, an economic practice that will conform with the, with, the, with the theory in order to get good things. It doesn't always work that way, of course. So we now have multiple capitalisms. So, and there are various schools too. So like you've got free market capitalists so, you know, along the Milton Friedman type guys, and then you've got the more Austrian school who are different, who disagree on, on several points, who are more just kind of um, you know, basic free market in the sense of libertarian, like let people just do what they do, um, but, um, but then, but then there are the things that get associated with capitalism that aren't necessarily intrinsically part of capitalism. So there's this article I read uh, last week. I just found it on a you know a Google search. It's on the um, the website for the Intercollegiate Studies Institute in the in the U.S. And it's called "Does Capitalism Destroy Culture?" by uh, Michael Matheson Miller. And it's just a short little article. I mean, he makes some good points. But the, the main points he, do, he does make is that when looking at, like, capitalism, it, you have to make certain distinctions because he points out that, uh, for instance, this is something that Peter Berger um, argued, that you have to separate things that are intrinsic to capitalism from things that are ex- extrinsic. Um, like, so that would be, like, the cultural effects that are actually directly caused by capitalism, the effects that are aided and abetted by capitalism. So capitalism kind of helps them happen, but isn't the prime mover of them. And then all those things that exist alongside capitalism that are often conflated with capitalism. So a lot of this is what happens in a lot of these debates between, uh, you know, capitalism and socialism or, or, you know, any, any variation on those debate that you can find that you, that you'll get often people criticizing one version of capitalism and people defending a different version of capitalism. And sometimes, um, sometimes they're completely different things. And, and so, um, so like coming back to the book, so the, the, it sounds like the developments that Stark is talking about to start out with are basically like, you know, the creation of some of these first kind of firms in the, in the monasteries, for instance, where you have, where you have a group of, uh, of individuals or monks who are, um, who expand to a degree that they need to hire a labor, labor force and they end up making more money. So they have more money to do something with. So right there is kind of like, I'd say the, the kernel of maybe the first bone of contention is, is the nature of profit because, um, you know, is, is profit bad? Is greed bad? Um, well, are the, are those two things necessarily linked, right? Does, is any profit made immediately to be associated with greed and where are the dividing lines precisely? Right. So, so I, I'd say that at least in our, like modern modern day economies everywhere, everyone tries to make at least some profit. Is that because they are all greedy? Um, well, no, because some people want to make um, 
well, some people aren't making enough to make a profit to begin with, right? They want to make more money in order to be able to, to live at a certain level. But then let's say that you have that level. If you can find such, you know, such an, you know, ideal level, you know, even in any individual case, like where, where exactly does that cut off? But say you can find it. Okay, here's the level at which, you know, you have just enough that you need in order to get by. Is it wrong to, to seek a profit anywhere above that? Um, well, probably not, right? If you're making like 5% more than that, than that level, it's like, well, I think everyone would agree, well, that would be great, you know, and it would be great to make even a bit more. Um, because what is, well, you go back, okay, I'm going to use a weird analogy. Um, think about squirrels, right? When a squirrel stores away its, you know, the nuts that it's collecting for food, it takes more than it can, it, it tries to take more than it can fit in its mouth. Not because it's greedy, because it will be good to have those extra nuts around for when, uh, you know, for when times get scarce, right? So it's basically what you, what you're, aims are what your goals are for that money and that's the point you made about these monks is that they weren't just seeking money for money's sake just to kind of like get a hoard of gold and and you know cackle over it and and uh you know be an evil kind of scrooge mcduck um they were actually using it for something and they had a it was within a like a, a framework and a, and a worldview in which that uh that prophet had a uh, uh there was a use for it and it wasn't just it wasn't just devoted to enriching themselves for their own you know for their own personal profit there was a there was something to which you know that money could be put like a, some some goal some aim to which that could be put and so right there there's a there's there's a a distinction that needs to be made between like the actual like you know pursuit of profit which always sounds like i mean i even f- feel kind of dirty saying it just cuz it's such a so it, it it just sounds wrong, right? Oh, the, you know, the pursuit of profit. It's it sounds like something some evil Scrooge McDuck would be doing, but doesn't that's not you know necessarily the case. Anytime you save something, anytime you make a little bit more for a little bit more than you have to make, you know, just to survive, that's that's a normal like that seems just absolutely normal for me for any human to to not only want that but that it's a, actually a good thing. Because with that profit, you can do so many you can do so many different things with it, as opposed to just hoarding it and gloating. Like you, you can save it for you know uh, for an emergency. That's a good thing. You can invest it in something else to make more money. And is it a bad thing to have more money? Well, no, not in and of itself. But then the debate becomes: Well, how much is too much more? And that's where I think that's where a lot of the 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 kind of criticism of capitalism comes into play is that they see okay well a little bit of profit is okay but a, a a lot and a lot of profit like you know millions times more than the the poorest person is making that's too much um and i can even you know agree with that sentiment yeah like i can see where it comes from and even myself you know that rubs me the wrong way too but it's like where what exactly are the principles involved and where is the cutoff point so Maybe like uh, to get back to the book, we can um, we can talk a bit about. Well, maybe either if there's anything relevant in the book, like to, to what I just said, go go with that. Or if not, you know, just bring up another point in this history because I want to know more about um, um, you know how these things developed and where they went. 
Okay, so I'll just begin with uh, just addressing that final point that you made by uh, reading the definition of capitalism that Stark provides, which is really concise. It's you know as concise as you can get for this complex topic. He writes, capitalism is an economic system wherein privately owned, relatively well-organized, and stable firms pursue complex commercial activities within a relatively free, unregulated market, taking a systematic, long-term approach to investing and reinvesting wealth, directly or indirectly, in productive activities involving a hired workforce and guided by anticipated and actual return. So the reason I, I think about that is because it, it makes me wonder, you know, when we talk about these exorbitant amounts, you know, this exorbitant display of inequality that you, that you see, is, you know, between people in the West and, you know, people in other parts of the world. Um, if, when we're talking about this exorbitant amount of money, I wonder if we're really talking about capitalism at, at that point, when we're looking at this, at this, um, this kind of imper- I mean, I I wonder more if it's in line with what he was talking about with the Roman Empire. Is this is this an imperial type thing that we're, just, we're that we're seeing? And it's not capitalism proper in the sense that you know these just firms that are taking in money and then just reinvesting it, you know, in in the activities in order to be more productive. Because as we as you're saying here, you know, if 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 you're taking if you're a squirrel. And you're fi- and you are, are so bloated on squirrels that you're dying. You're yep. not reinvesting here yeah. on your on nuts. I mean that you're that you're dying and squirrels too, maybe in some of these firms. Um, yeah, this, is that capitalism? I don't. I would argue that in in many ways it's not. No, what we're really seeing when we're when we're critiquing it is we're critiquing this more imperial type, just exorbitant consumption. I'm just so rich and I love it. You know, that's to me that's not really free market capitalism, and I'm sure that's that's debatable. But yeah, that's what I thought of when you were when you were discussing uh, that 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 huge wealth gap. Um, what about? So you've got you've talked about the monasteries, right, and their kind of development of, uh, you know, these proto firms. But um, what does he have to say about, um, like, how that developed later on? Kind of like, was there a, in his argument, was there like a Christian um, um, aspect to the rise of you know capitalism as we think of it nowadays? So just the the total economic system that that. You, you know, Europe has developed over the last like few hundred years. Like, what does he have to say about that? Well, you know, there's a lot of it is based on his idea that it's these these Christian ideals that um, that were originated in these monasteries where they forged basically forged capitalism, and then you uh, you know basically you you have you skip forward in time and there's you know in other in other places the same type thing starts to occur so he he traces it back first first time you see these you know stable well run organized firms engaging in capitalist pursuits were these monasteries but then when you look in like the 13th 14th century at the italian city states you see a similar thing but they are also functioning under similar um, constraints as these monasteries were in the sense that they have relative freedom. Um, They have, they are of course, you know, they're Catholic, um, but they also have the ability to play off different imperial powers against one another so that it's like a monastery, it's like the conditions in the monastery, but in the real world, because they have just the right geography, the right 
ways of transporting goods here and there, and then the fact that they can play off imperial powers against one another, that they have a, a sufficient amount of freedom to engage in the exact same pursuit. And so then in these, you know, in these Italian city-states, he, he goes to point out how, you know, in the less free, you know, uh, places where there's, you know, tyranny and people are, you know, having all their stuff stolen and you can't, there's no way that you can um, lend to somebody without this ruler being like, well, you know what, I decided not to pay it back because I'm the king. You know, when you, in, in one situation, the Catholic Church actually excommunicated a king because he, he refused to pay back, uh, it might not have been a king, I can't remember, I think it was a prince, a lord or something, but he refused to pay back a loan. They excommunicated him and made him pay it back at 50% interest over eight years. But anyways, within these Italian city-states, you had the the conditions in order to pursue capitalism, and they went about it with, with a, a huge amount of, of fervor in creating the educational institutions um, where they created these this capitalist class that was able to calculate you know interests and and to devise ways of managing firms or long term and you know stably and then they outsourced that to other areas of Europe so then you started to see more capitalism uh, capitalistic type activities taking place in England and in other areas where there was enough freedom from you know from warfare from tyranny and yet still enough ingenuity and desire for you know this kind of efficient way of reusing your your wealth in order to create you know these stable and long-term um forward-looking firms well that leads me to my next question is uh i was going to ask why does why does stark think this is a good thing this kind yeah. of gets to the this kind of gets to the you know uh, you know, the the debate really, the anti-capitalist per perspective is why was the development of capital, why does he see the development of capitalism as a good thing um, as opposed to, you know, the way that a lot of anti-capitalists would see it is like, well, um, well this would just be another, another uh, you know, error, arrow in their quiver for attacking capitalism and Christianity is mm -hmm. that the two went together. Mm -hmm. So, um why does he think that we should kind of like uh, see this as a good thing? Right. Well, so what the, the name of his book is The Victory of Reason, How Christianity Led to Freedom, Capitalism, and Western Success. Mm -hmm. So basically, if you don't like West at all, I mean, you're like, oh, so there's, yeah, exactly. There's another reason to hate Christianity because it led to, you know, quote unquote freedom and you know, the West, you know, mm -hmm. uh, colonizing the rest of the world. Well, I think on the one point is that he is... You know, Western-centric, obviously. That's yeah. one aspect, is that he, you know, he's, he's not uh, as bad. It's, it doesn't, he comes across sometimes as, you know, the West is the best. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just, you know, a, a part of being, I guess, a Westerner. For mm -hmm. a lot of people, that's, you know, that's just how they see their own culture, is that it's, it's the best. But another reason is that he ties them to these ideals that, as we've discussed, um seem to be in practice the best kinds of ideas that you can have about your role in life and how to interact with other people and you know chart your course into the future is that you should consider yourself as being an individual individual person individual moral agent that has to answer to what it, the uh, your your creator your you know the higher god and that you know, in this way you know like we were talking about these early monks when faced with what do we do with all of this money, they 
they chose not to just you know use it for lavish displays of consumption but rather to reinvest it in the community in their own estates and into creating an order a habitable order that was that you know as we see you know years on manifested in things like the Notre Dame Cathedral and other great um you know huge monuments to this sense of the beauty in the cosmos mm-hmm. you know the beauty of god on earth and that i think is what i mean he's a sociologist of religion and he's written so many different books on christianity so he is very obviously he comes at it from uh, a christian kind of you know background that and then you know for people in the west who you know are conservative and traditional obviously are going to have a fondness for christianity because that's where we you know that's where our culture came from and so i yeah I, but i totally still i understand what you're you're saying is that but still capitalism mm-hmm. is it really good is it really good well he argue, would argue and then he argues in the book that yes the capitalism that we're discussing as a as a technique to use wealth to increase wealth is is a good thing it's a rational thing to do it's reasonable and when you look at all the different ways that you can use your money it seems to me that it's probably the most rational way to reinvest your money that we know of at this point. Um, you know, it's and the but the fact is, is that you can't analyze an economic system with just without looking at all of the other different aspects mm-hmm. of a society. Like you yeah. pointed out, there are you know society has so many different centers of gravity and different ways of viewing the world you have the you know the arts you have your technological achievements you have your religious views your moral views you have your social connections and whatever ethnic strives or you know th- all of those different things that that all feed into how a cult, what a culture is and then you know not even factoring in the higher the hierarchical aspect of it you know the 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 levels of inequality and then also the spiritual hierarchy you know whether or not the the society has a a higher uh view of of life than just you know a primitive desire to accumulate wealth um i think that you know when you factor all those things in then you see that capitalism is just a par, uh, is just a technique of economic activity that seems very rational but you can also be completely irrational really mm-hmm. in the religious sense so you could inherit the most rational capitalist firm and yet you can inst- you can use the wealth not to you know redistribute it into your firm and you know to create you know greater greater forms of you know efficient uh, efficient productivity but you can use it for lavish displays of consumption, you know, or, or people, uh, the morals, uh, so the society could have moral decay so that everybody's just, you know, sheep. Everyone sees one another as, you know, just another sucker born every minute, you know. And um, so though, though, when you take those things into consideration, you can see how capitalism can, beco- it can become evil, mm-hmm. can become imponerized, I guess, for lack of a better word, just because there's so many different cycles that, that society goes through. So the, you know, when you look at Best Buy today or you, Goldman Sachs, let's take Goldman Sachs or something like, 
and then you compare it to the mon- monastic estates yeah. that were loaning. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, they were loaning to to individuals, and they were practicing usury. These early Christian communities, um, but do, do they did not have quite near the same uh, reputation as Goldman Sachs mm-hmm. has today? Mm-hmm. Well, um, maybe moving on to uh, I want to get to to this article. That, that I mentioned, does capitalism destroy culture? The main point that he makes, which is one that I've thought of before, is this idea of like the what he calls the solipsistic individualism and consumerism. So this co- goes back to the last point you made, um, Corey, about the the way in which, or the, the way to see capitalism as kind of like a tool, and that of course it can be it can be used just like any tool for for different types of purposes, and when you when you look at capitalism and the critique of capitalism, the the two things to separate are just the like the the economic um, like principles involved in uh, in a system in a society, but also the cultural kind of baggage that gets um, associated with it. So, in in the example of like Western capitalism, seen as this kind of individualistic consumeristic society, that is the case, but. The, those phenomena are are sh- are, are distinct. Um, they just happen to be combined. Like capitalism by itself does not need to necessarily and you know inexorably lead to a, ca- a consumerist society. Like you said, like the you know the the monks practicing this early form of capitalism weren't you know consumerist total individualists. I mean, if anything, they were collectivists. But they had a but they had this uh, well, collectivists in the sense of you know living in a monastery and and sharing resources amongst each other. And uh, you know, by taking vows of poverty too, um, but that, that there was uh, there was a t- there is a type of individualism involved, um, like that you mentioned that Stark mentions this idea of seeing yourself as an individual, um, seeing everyone as an individual with their own responsibilities and with the well what we'd call today with the rights that come with those responsibilities too. The you know they would see it as like the divinity within each individual, the, the value within each individual. But then there's there's a different type of individualism. I think I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, you know, or maybe a few weeks ago, the different types of individualism. Like there is this kind of like uh, like toxic individualism, which is really just selfishness, self-centeredness, um, like seeing yourself as more important and others as not even having any value or very little value. And then the idea, um, so that I'd say that's like pathological um, uh, individualism compared to just individualism in the sense that I just mentioned, like everyone has a spark of the divine. Everyone is, is responsible for their own actions and everyone has like a responsibility kind of like within themselves to, to, um, to develop themselves, to live up to their potential, to, to, um, to, to be responsible in the world for yourself and for others and for the world in general. Like the, the that's the real that's really the positive aspect of individualism. So when you look at the West, we don't we don't see a lot of that individualism that that type of individualism. We do see well, I don't know that's debatable, but we do see a lot of um, like pathological individualism, the kind of me first attitude. And um, so what this guy in this article calls that is basically the the radical concept of autonomy, and that. Um, that that's that is one aspect, but it is it is it happens to be tied with you know in in a materialistic like um, capitalist culture, 
but it is it is one element of it is one aspect one characteristic that is combined to make that 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 world that that uh, that system um, but you can have and you do have cultures that practice some form of capitalism that that have free markets that aren't so individualistic in the in the negative sense aren't so solipsistic aren't so materialistic and that's the other thing is the the materialism of it that um like so you you brought up these monks and we can go back to um like the 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 free market practices developed by the arabs and by the the muslims um so so the 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 arab muslims and even before that so before you know islam was a thing even you had free market practices and they all had belief systems which were anything but materialistic like all of these early instances of capitalism and free markets were in like very uh like either religious uh cultures or religious or or cultures with a very like developed like spiritual like philosophy um, these were not materialistic cultures. So the two can coexist. Well, they can exist apart from each other or together. Um, they, like, they're not necessarily linked in any way. So what we have today is really a, like a combination of some great things and some really bad things. And when you get a combination like that, you can have, you can have um, good developments and you have bad developments at the same time and it's tough to tease them out it's tough to see it's tough to really like identify what the positives and what the negatives are i think you can do it um like you know not necessarily perfectly but you can get some idea so in the in the in the west there there are still good things about capitalism even as it is practiced arguably you know if we if we even just look at the you know the base level of of um you know people's quality of life the the base level is pretty good comparatively it's there are still there are still things that you can identify as bad and and not ideal in any sense but really comparing like the the people in the in the lowest 10% of even like the united states you know which is seen as the kind of global center of capitalism um which is arguable too but even that those lower 10% are living a lot better than you know people were living even 200 years ago um and just like you can't kind of write off the 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 good things about the past that like the positive developments that came out of Christianity, you can't really write off the the things that are actually you know arguably good things that have come out of capitalism, no matter how much you hate capitalism like you're 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 still benefiting in some way um even if you might be resentful for it um you know that that's still there but but you've also got <clears throat> some negatives. So uh, negatives about the overall culture, not necessarily just about capitalism. So in, in the development of like the, 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 the worldview of, of the West over the past few hundred years, um, there's the argument that uh, like the, the Enlightenment was a great thing. And again, arguably good things came out of the Enlightenment, but there were also some bad things that came out of it. One of the things that came out of the Enlightenment and all the philo- philosophies that developed was this this uh, first of all this split between like this the cartesian split between mind and matter which which um which gave like by seeing reality as two separate distinct substances and matter as this mechanistic thing going on and then and then um uh, mind as this kind of divinely or uh, divinely gifted um thing ability the soul um after that division once you know science developed and you know uh, and religion was criticized enough 
with no reason to believe in God, all you were left with was the mechanistic universe. And without, um, without um, that kind of, without the mind being, you know, an essential part of that universe, you were just left with the, the mechanism. And that led to the development of all these different philosophies over the past several hundred years that don't have any, um, like, well, divinity in them. That they're, they are these mechanistic philosophies. So what we have nowadays is a materialistic philosophy, a materialistic worldview that has, again, this has nothing essential to do with capitalism. It is, you know, this can be strictly divorced from capitalism. It may have grown up in a capitalist environment, but the ideas themselves um, aren't in any way essentially tied to an, an economic theory even. Um, some economic theories have adopted these philosophies, but that's, again, just how these things have combined. So you have, these, you have this worldview, whether you're aware of it or not, that, the, that there, um, the, the conclusions, like the logical conclusions of these philosophies, even if you're aware of them or not, are that, for instance, there is no such thing as uh, objectively or objective morality. So there is no such thing as anything that is intrinsically better or worse than anything else. And that there is the, that basically it leads to a kind of determinism or a kind of, um, um, well, a world, a world in which there is no personal responsibility. There is no, no thing that is essentially and like in, a, in and of itself better or worse than another. And while that's a totally like wrongheaded philosophy because it's in inherently like inconsistent and self-contradictory it provides like the raw material um even on an unconscious level for people not to value things that are truly valuable and to therefore value themselves more than they are um, um worthy of being valued so that leads to this kind of this really like pathological selfishness and self-centeredness where you you get this because there's because there's no reason to believe that 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 you should be living your life in a in like a virtuous manner, that leaves you uh, that leaves you to that leaves you free to just operate on the your own base instincts, and when you just when you cut off that kind of controlling like uh, you know frontal lobe kind of inhibition on your worst impulses. Then that leaves those worst worst impulses just to play themselves out, um, play themselves out like mechanistically, automatically, and that's I think what we see in in uh, I think that is gets to that probably gets to the heart of the like why capitalism is bad more than anything else because it's not actually capitalism it is the it is really the the philosophy or the religion that you're living by whether you're aware of it or not. This comes back to to the you know the Sam Harris Jordan Peterson debate that we talked about you know months ago, where the, the point Peterson makes repeatedly, and which I think is absolutely correct, is that no matter what you think you believe, no matter what you say you believe, like your actions are kind of predicated on an unconscious belief system, which he calls a hierarchy of values. Right, you you no matter what you do, no matter what you perceive, say, or do, it is the 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 acting on acting upon um, a a system a hierarchy of values of some sort. If you haven't defined those values, and if you're if you actually reject the like a system of those values, the way it seems to happen is that if you if just left to your devices, your own devices, then you act on the lowest part of yourself. If you don't define your 
um, your hierarchy of values, or if you don't have it defined for you, that would be kind of like the the like the, the ideal situation would be that you that you have the raw material available around you from which you can form your own hierarchy of values, like using your own reason, using your own conscience. But barring that, the, like the next best thing would be to have a society that basically has a, a, a system of morals in place that if you follow it, even without thinking, you'd at least be better off than, uh, than not having such a system. But we don't even have that so much. It is there, but it's, it, it, it's not quite in the form, it's not even quite in the form where that would be a good thing because you have this system where all these people are, um, don't really have that star, you know, to, to guide them. They, they do have a system that reinforces the worst things about themselves, that does reinforce the consumeristic and, and, uh, and self-centered aspects of, of your own personality. So in such a situation where you have um, like society which provides the, the raw material for those beliefs and you have the, the lack of a, an internal structure guiding your own um, morality, your own behavior, that it, 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 it puts you in the worst of both worlds where you can't, you can't make the right choice because you're not, even, you're not even aware that there is a right choice to make and oftentimes you deny that there is a right choice to make, that there is a better choice to make. Now combine that with capitalism and and you you get the worst aspects of capitalism you know so called um which again i don't really think are even like capitalistic uh, like they're facilitated by capitalism and capitalism fa facilitates them like they can work in a, they can do a you know a um you know a, an evil tango together but the but but you, but that tango you know the, each of those dancers can be separated and capitalism on its own with uh, within a, a philosophy and a worldview and a religion like within a hierarchy of values that is more healthy um, it doesn't uh, doesn't need to um, go in the same direction essentially you can have you know monks making a lot of money that are still doing something for their community and I th uh, yeah yeah anything to say about that <laughs> No, I, I agree wholeheartedly with, with what you've just said. That was, uh, the only thing I can think of is to, when I'm, when I'm thinking about this, uh, this capitalistic ethic, you know, and this, this drive to acquire, you know, to acquire wealth, you know, I think the conditions that we are in now, you know, in the West aren't that much different than privileged uh, you know, Roman senators or, you know, mm -hmm. some, the elite of any other system in history, you know, where life is good, you know, other people are doing the work for you, even if you are, you know, working, but life is still good. And well, what else are you going to do? Let's be hedonistic, consume and enjoy your life. So as you pointed out, it's not capitalism. It's more of a, just a, a confluence of, of many other things that capitalism fed into, but there was also more to do with the, the lack of a, a, an aim, mm -hmm. an aim to live, an aim to live by. And the, these, if, if Stark is correct, then, you know, the capitalism originated in the bosom of Christianity. And so you'd imagine that it, in those conditions, that's where, it, that's where it functioned best. And when you look back on it, you know, especially where, you know, with the Christian monasteries and, 
and with a, you know kind of a Protestant ethic, and with people who are explicitly aware of their their value hierarchy because it was given to them, then you know all of these activities make sense and they're kind of balanced out. You know, they the the your your rights and responsibilities are balanced out. As Jordan Peterson points out, we have all these discussions about rights. But we never really talk about responsibilities. Well, in Christianity, they they were they went hand in hand. You know, the, our rights uh, and our political rights and our our rights. You know, how we should treat one another, how we should be treated. These were all very you know big ideas in the forefront of Christian thinking and Christian morality. But then we also had a responsibility in order not to sin, sinning. That was the capital crime. Don't you you know? Don't do all of these things. Behave correctly. You know, behave properly. Aim true. You know, think of Christ. You know, live in Christ. Live as you would think Christ would would want you to live. Um, all of these these were this was a huge burden of responsibility. That obviously it produced a lot of guilt, produced a lot of shame, but then it also produced the kind of suffering, kind of conscious suffering, in order to you know improve your life. The kind of suffering that does not go hand in hand with just eating Jolly Ranchers and watching TV and you know eating Taco Bell and then complaining about everything, you know that's that's um, we have the the fruits of this you know this capitalist ethic that apparently was informed very strongly by uh, by Christianity, but we don't have the Christianity. We're like zombies. Mm-hmm. We're like Christian zombies. <laughs> it's very it's very strange. Not just Christian zombies, but zombies in general. We're mm-hmm. just you know, where a lot of us are the walking dead, and that's why you see the the nihilism, um, you, the the large increase in in drug addiction, and why we have an economic system that seems to have just kicked so many people overboard, and you know, just watching so many of them drown. Um, it's yeah, it's it's not just capitalism's fault because, as we've been saying, it is a tool. It is a part of the economic, you know, structure that you know we chose our ancestors chose to do things this way and they chose to do the, these things this way because arguably they worked and they were successful they made money they established firms they established you know large families they were able to they were able to live better off than the generation they did before them but you know not everything is just pure progress clearly and as you pointed out Harrison there was there's a, been a big gap between our capability to uh, for you know, techno- technological and economic achievements, and our more moral and religious achievements, we've pretty much abandoned the 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 latter as being un- unimportant. But they're not unimportant, not by any means, by not by any stretch of the imagination. Our religious values and having a a consciously structured hierarchy of values unimportant because. As we've seen, they lead to chaos. Lacking that leads to aimlessness. Aimlessness leads to a bunch of zombies, and then zombies lead to chaos. And then pretty soon, everybody's like, "What the heck happened?" Well, two hundred years ago, you kicked your reason for living overboard, and then went hog wild, uh, you know, uh, creating all different kinds of sodas to sell all over the world. But you know, I mean, obviously, a lot of that, um, you know, all of that economic activity is. It's just part of us, part of humanity. As you pointed out, like this capitalism, it goes all the way back to, you know, the ancient Near East. There's, um, there's roots of it there, but I mean, that's just, you know, economic activity in general. And, and you know, the, it's been a long ways to develop 
this this system. It's been, you know, it's it's taken a confluence of a bunch of different factors, and then turns out if Stark's right, these factors are highly positive. Um, is, is a very positive set of ideals, and being capitalistic, you know, in the sense that you establish frugal st- uh, firms that are stable and managed and supervised, and that can, you know, exist to uh, to reinvest the the wealth into greater and greater amounts of wealth. It's not necessarily that that's a bad thing, but I can still say that there is a definite evil that arises when you create these said firms. And that is, is that you, you introduce into a society, a, a new life form, essentially a new life form that has its own reasons to live its own ways of gaining sustenance. Um, you know, it's not the church, it's not the government, it's something completely different that doesn't really necessarily owe its allegiances to the church or the government. This firm takes on a life of its own. So the the Chinese, they didn't view private property very um, favorably because they viewed it as being unstable, inherently unstable. Um, and it is, you know, and, you know, especially in the, in the form of creating these capitalistic firms, because you create these, these entities that, uh, accrue their own power and they're unaccountable and they they grow and metastasize within society. I mean, for, for better or for worse, you know, I don't like to use the term metastasize because that makes it sound inherently cancerous, but it's still true that you, you gain, you know, these new little fiefdoms, these new little kingdoms within a society. And when you look at America, one of the problems I think that you see in like American style capitalism is that you don't have like you're talking about this hierarchy of values, this large, this strong set of principles that says, you know, this is our country, this, the government is, you know, the president has this kind of authority. He, you know, you, you are all insubordinate to this centralized authority. You know, you, you have this globalist, you know, kind of this globalist mentality. Whereas in China, as Zizek pointed out in the, you know, the debate with Jordan Peterson, you have a very strong and centralized state that can force the capitalists to reinvest in the country, which it seems like a very capitalist, you know, idea. Okay, so we got all this wealth, let's reinvest it here in the country. Well, you know, all of these different firms without a centrally, you know, unifying kind of a command structure, you know, they why why reinvest it in the country? Just reinvest it in my firm, but I'll reinvest it in my firm in this other country or that other country or whatever, you know, you don't, you don't have a, this centralized um, authority to really make those, to, to make some, you know, discussions. And then obviously if you did, then you'd have questions like, well, is that really the free market? You know, it, you, but then you also, you run into the questions of how free should the market be? Because, you know, if, if, it, if the, well, so maybe, like as they've pointed out, with this globalization, you know, and Western companies and just corporations in general going, you know, around the world to find, you know, cheap labor or whatever, it's benefited other people. So it could just be the case that, you know, a rising tide raises all boats, but, you know, that the tide was so low in other places that our boats are going to have to sink quite a bit before everybody's boat, you know, gets back up to the same level. However, there's still there is such a lack of debate, a lack of discussion about it that it's 
you know, you've you've got this um, just kind of haphazard set of you know free market economies or free market firms that are just reinvesting in their own firm and for whatever, you know, just doing whatever is will maximize their own profit, mm -hmm. which, you know, that's part, obviously that's part of the core critique of, of capitalism is that these firms don't really have their own allegiance. They have their own imperatives that are, are that may or may not coincide with the imperatives of the town in which they, they operate. But um, also part of the, you know, the free market is that over time, you know, these, they still have to pay the price if they, right. you know, I mean, if you um, are going to, you know, piss off all your consumers, you have mm -hmm. to pay the price, you know, mm -hmm. sooner or later, if you pollute their towns or you pollute this and that, you know, you, there's uh you know, there's still some natural consequences to right. that kind of behavior. Yeah. That's the point I was going to make. Um, you know, this idea of the, the firms as these new fiefdoms, the, the you know, kings of their own castles, um, Reminds me of uh, like a book I've been listening to uh, by Murray Rothbard, who is a you know Austrian economic economist um, on the Progressive Era. So he actually looked at um, at all of these dynamics in like the late 1800s in the United States, and the example he gave was that uh, well he he kind of I, I think he might agree that a lot of these firms like in whether it was in the railways or the the, the oil companies or um, he gives like five different like types of of uh, corporations that were existing at the time, it, whatever they were. It's like a lot of them were, and he, he makes this point clear. They were in it for themselves, right? They wanted to make as much profit as possible. They wanted to be the only guy in town. They wanted to get rid of their competition. But the point that he makes is that that never worked. That there were always consequences for like bad decision making and even like immoral decision making. It's like these these guys all had it coming and it and it came eventually. But um, if it didn't come eventually, the reason that these firms were able to survive was because they got in bed with the government, who basically like subsidized them and maybe made them uh, like a, a state monopoly. They gave them the power to to stay in power in their own fiefdoms and um and you know basically survive whereas they were either in the process of being like defeated in the, the competitive free market because of their own mistakes because of their own like poor decision making and poor planning and poor management and the companies that uh, so this was he basically argues that until the 1890s uh, early 1900s that america was like very much more a free market economy than it became and that with the pre progressive era, that was when uh, a lot of the more kind of state interventionist um, like policies started being implemented with the creation of like state monopolies and uh, and subsidized firms and things like this. But before that, um, like even Standard Oil, um, the like he points out that first of all, there's no evidence that Standard Oil ever engaged in like um, um, like pre predatory pricing, for instance. What the way that Standard Oil got so big was by buying up all the competition, but even that proved to be uh, a downside because when people saw that Standard was buying up all of these new like oil firms, they just essentially created fake firms, like the fake operations with fake factories and fake you know things, and started selling them to to Standard. Standard would buy them and then realize that they'd bought and they'd, they'd bought like nothing essentially they just wasted you know however many hundreds of thousands of dollars buying this you know company that didn't actually exist 
and new companies were 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 like popping up as competition to to Standard Oil. And Standard, like I think the highest like market share it, it had at any one point was like maybe ninety ninety five percent or something. And that was steadily going down before the like the antitrust suit against Standard. But the but he he shows examples of this in all of these different areas where. It was the it was the consequences of of the market that basically punished these companies for for being such jerks essentially such capitalist jerks, and um, and that that's the the kind of myth is that um, um, there, there, well there's a few like interconnected myths about like ec- economics in general but this this period of history in particular about why. Um, why certain policies got put into place? What's like economic practices work or don't? Like the the ills or or, or goods of of competition, where essentially like the what what a lot of capitalist critics I think don't get is just how just like when, when you look at at least this type of free market capitalism, um, how pro consumer it is. That is like pro you as a as a buyer even. Not even as a like the owner of a corporation, is that the that the like w- one of the reasons that all of these corporations were looking for like state intervention it was because they wanted to they wanted to charge more and they couldn't because there were other companies that were giving a good deal to to their to the to the, to the consumer base people were like oh look I can get this I I can pay for this like train ride or I can buy this product for for less money. And that's a good thing. And and all these other like all these competitive, you know, evil corporations were happy to do that. And then the the big corporations were like, well, no, we can't have that. That means we make less money. That was the, that's where the greed enters. Like the the greed enters when when you want to stop competition and you know eat up the market share for yourself and el- well eliminate that competition. Um, and then, but the only way to achieve that, at least looking at this history and like th- through this type of analysis, like Rothbard argues, the only way that for that to actually happen is for the, the government to intervene for the, for the government and the big corporations to actually get into bed together to make that, to make that happen because left to their own devices, it doesn't work because new corporations do show up that are able to undercut the big firms. And because, because one of the, one of the reason that takes place is because the big firms, the big established companies and corporations they they have all of this old infrastructure. This is just one reason. They're they're using old technology, and they don't want to update. You know, they don't want to innovate. They, they can't innovate, and they don't want to innovate because they want to keep their their profits where they are. And to to invest more money in themselves would be to to lose out on those profits. So you get a new company that has the latest technology that comes in and says, "Oh, you know, well, I can do this better than they, than this giant corporation can do, and I can get I can charge a lower price." And that company then grows, and the big company gets resentful, and it's like, "Well, I don't like this. I don't like them like taking a bit of my pie." The the, the it's actually the the free market. These other corporations that are actually acting as a um, uh, like a dampener on the the greed, the 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 nasty bit of capitalism. These big capitalists. So why would you want to to eliminate like capitalism, which is this competition that that um, you know, goes against this greed aspect, arguably because of the the greed of this other corporation. But uh, you know, that's an, another issue. Um, that that seems to be the like the, the strange direction that anti capitalists go in is that okay, well, we should we should take away the the freedom of, for that other firm to come in. Well, this is what it essentially amounts to. We should take away the freedom for that other firm to come in and 
do a better job than the big firm. That's essentially what it amounts to. And, um, and that, unfortunately, that is the, the type of capitalism we have like today, especially in the United States, is this, this type of capitalism that benefits the big corporations because of the, the links between the government and the big corporations. Because, the, there, because there isn't a free competitive market. Because the, um, and this has to do with like regulatory capture and, um, you know, all, all sorts of things like that, the, you know, the, the lobbying and the, the revolving door of, of, you know, boards of directors and government and the, the you know, the, 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 just the, the backroom deals that they make with each other in order to give themselves a, an unfair advantage. Really, like, it's, that's the thing. It's an unfair advantage. A fair advantage would be not to have special privileges and to just let them like duke it out on the market essentially. So, um, so I, I would argue that it's even like the, that like the, the, the free market system, the free exchange and the free competition is actually probably the most moral, um, like system that you could put in place because people are free to be, people are free to be evil. People are free to be good. People are free to either punish the bad guys or that they perceive as bad or to, you know, do as much good as possible as they can. Um, when you remove that freedom, then, um, then you're basically dictating a, a, moral, uh, a moral outlook. And that is, that is the worst form of totalitarianism, I think. When you, when you tell a person what the, what the good and the bad thing to do is and then strictly enforce it and don't give them any freedom to actually make the choice on their own, to actually give people the, the freedom to, to, um, to make their own choices is, I think, what comes out of this, coming back to this book, this Christian idea of you, you are your own individual, you have your own responsibilities. It is your job to, like, to, to figure out what is right and wrong, not, to come up, not necessarily to come up with your own ideas about what, what, are right or, or, what are right or wrong, but to discover them. Because there are things that are, there are objective goods and objective evils. It's difficult to figure them out, but it is. It really does come down to the individual to to understand for themselves and to discover for themselves what those are. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, I just gave a, a religious defense of capitalism. I don't know how how good it was. But. <laughs> I'm sold. <laughs> well, it reminds me of what Alfred White Northhead said about uh, North coercive. Whitehead. Did I? What did I say? Alfred North Whitehead. Yeah. Sorry. Um, first about co- uh, coercive versus persuasive influence, uh, mm-hmm. you know, especially from the per- the perspective of God, that you know that either you are you're forcing people to make this decision because that's just you know this is the authoritarian approach, mm-hmm. or it's the coercive, like yeah, well you know you should try this, or you know, or the I mean the persuasive, I mean, mm-hmm. and you're like well you know why don't you why don't you give this shot uh, give this a shot you know what entices you what what do you want to do what what is within you that you know that you want to bring out and that's when when you're talking about the free market you know that's persuasive at the utmost and it's you you are you look around you see what what is your calling you know that's from the protestant ethic you know what what is your calling in the world what is god calling you to do in the world and the, you know that becomes your profession you know that's like all of these religious undertones to you know careers and callings and you know 
you know, living your potential on the planet. All of these things, um, you know, have been argued before by many different sociologists and, you know, Rodney Stark being one, that this obviously was had its roots in, in the Christian idea of this persuasive power of God, that he's persuading you to come out into to reality. He's persuading you to, to become something. And economic activity is just one aspect. That was just one aspect of, of many, but that had its roots in Christian theology. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, with that said, I think we've talked enough for today. So, uh, yeah, thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye, everybody.